here on BFBS Radio 2. British troops take the fight into Sierra Leone. The immediate priority is to get on top of the outbreak. The outbreak is getting worse at the moment. The number of cases is increasing rapidly, so the situation is not under control. Britain is on standby to hit Islamists in Syria if Obama says so. And do British politicians care about defence? Party conference goers say no. Hello to you, I'm Paula Middlehurst. So, Britain then is sending 750 military personnel into Sierra Leone in West Africa to help deal with the deadly Ebola outbreak there. They're going to be establishing treatment centres as well as a training academy with support from RFA Argus and three Merlin helicopters. The Defence Secretary, Michael Fallon, told BFBS reporter James Hurst. Well, we're responding to the requests from the government of Sierra Leone. The outbreak there is getting out of control. The number of cases is increasing rapidly. And we're already beginning to see from cases as far apart as Spain and Australia and the United States the very real danger that this outbreak could spread from West Africa to elsewhere in the world, to to Europe and the States and and Australasia. Your test for military involvement has often been whether... British troops can make a difference. What are the differences you think uh, British military help can make in Sierra Leone? Well, we have a responsibility to Sierra Leone. We have a historical legacy in Sierra Leone. And where I think we can really make a difference is, first of all, in helping to make sure there are more treatment places that are being built. Secondly, to help train those who are dealing with infection control. And thirdly, in providing uh, logistical support to the government of Sierra Leone and making sure that uh, there are enough people there to, uh, to get a grip of the situation and to help out with things like helicopter lift and so on. Is there a, a time frame for this deployment or, or is it open-ended and, until the job is done and the health crisis is over? Well, the immediate priority is to get on top of the outbreak. The outbreak is getting worse at the moment. The number of cases is increasing rapidly, so the situation is not under control. So the immediate task is to help the government of Sierra Leone get it under control. There will be concern for some of those who are going and for their families that this is an area with a killer disease. What measures and mitigations can you put in to, to try to stop those who are deployed to help falling victim to this disease? Well, it's not the only disease that they're going to face. There are others like malaria and so on. There are very strict procedures in place. Uh, they will be trained properly. Uh, they'll be prepared for this. They'll have all the necessary uh, uh, equipment that they need uh, before they're sent out on deployment. We've had troops there since, uh, since the middle of August. And the vast majority of the troops that are being deployed will not themselves be handling uh, patients. Their, their job will be to train those who will be. Just give us a little more idea about the role of RFA Argus and those three Merlin helicopters. How, how are they going to help? Are they merely on standby for the potential of British personnel getting infected or, or, or will they be contributing day to day? 
No, they'll be helping day to day with logistics and with lift, not only for British troops, but uh, perhaps also for other uh, charities and other others who are working there who need help in getting up country. They'll also be there. The ship will be there to provide reinsurance and to demonstrate that uh, the British government is serious about the help that uh, is being made available. And the ship will be the base for the three helicopters. What do you say to those troops who say, well, I, I signed up to fight for my country, but I signed up happy to fight a man I can see with a gun. I don't know how to fight a, a, an invisible virus. No, the, our troops will be defending British interests. They know our jo- their job is to keep Britain safe. They need, we need to keep this country safe and Western Europe safe from the spread of a, uh, of a deadly virus. Humanitarian aid... Uh, which has the overall aim of protecting us here in the United Kingdom, that kind of humanitarian aid is something they're they're well used to, and I'm very confident this is a mission they're going to discharge uh, with with success. Is it a mission, if necessary, you're prepared to expand and, and, and run perhaps into years if it comes to that kind of health crisis? Well, we haven't put a time frame on it. The first priority is to get the outbreak uh, under control and to make sure the number of cases starts to diminish. It's not diminishing at the moment, it's increasing. So that's the absolute priority. Getting the outbreak under control, Christopher Lee. Uh, What do you make of what Michael Fallon had to say? Well, the first thing is that this whole thing has been driven by the Foreign Office and what the Ministry of Defence is doing, say, we can do it. And this is a great opportunity for the Ministry of Defence, which is in a difficulty at the moment because it's just coming up for a defence review and we want to prove that you can do all sorts of things. So um, but the Defence Secretary said, we've got the boys, we're saying they're in there. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting, President Obama doesn't pussyfoot around this as the British do. He describes this publicly, this is a threat to our national security. And there is the basis of what we're really talking about, and that is the international global security is threatened by this disease. Some analysts are saying that it's a greater threat than ISIS. Um, yes, they do. Um, and I know it's, it's difficult to judge what you might do with ISIS and make the same you know, analysis with, with West Africa. But put it in this way, the World Bank is saying at the moment that this alone... This uh, disease alone in West Africa is going to destabilise the states of West Africa at the moment, they're saying, by $32 billion, billion, right? Now, this brings down the whole economy of West Africa, one of the richest economies in the world collectively. That's the size of the problem because it's not just, oh, well, a few people lose some money on the, on the stock exchange. Other people have to react to that. When your economy crashes, what happens? You get disquiet in the countries. You get insurrection. And that is the, and that without the disease, and we're talking about now the best estimate is maybe a, a million dead by, by the beginning of next year. That is, that, is, that is the size of the problem. The last time we had anything like this to compare it with was when the HIV AIDS epidemic uh, struck. That's incredibly well managed now. Uh, nobody really knows, even with extensive compu- computer modelling, how this is going to uh, play itself out. But indeed, governments are sitting up collectively now because of those financial concerns that you mentioned. That's absolutely right. And the, the other side of this is that um, when, when, when AIDS uh, first came to anybody's attention, there was no, nobody knew any cure for it. Uh, uh, nobody knows any particular cure other than basic, really basic health standards. Um, I mean, what are the soldiers going to be doing there? Uh, the first thing you do is you treat people. Second thing you do is you isolate the other communities. 
And the third thing you do, and this is very much part of that, this is a day-by-day thing, you, 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 you get West Africans not to bury people as they normally do. Um, for example, it's the custom to touch the body. You can't do that anymore. So you're changing that whole social distinction. But the most important thing that will happen is that somebody is now working overtime to try and get something which will, which will identify whether somebody is contagious beforehand. But it is a whole region, and eventually it will be global. It's a whole region. We know that 3,400 people have died so far in Guinea, Sierra Leone and Liberia. Is 750 British troops enough of a commitment alongside America and other nations to to tackle this? Is that going to be proportionately the right response? Yeah, it depends what you're doing. I mean, you can't get round to every village, or you may be able to get round to every village. It's putting in in position the health system as much as you can, and that's a global thing. But let's put this in another perspective. Um, The 3,400 or so have died from Ebola uh, thus far, yes. Uh, more than 12 times that number die from malaria every day. Now, put it in that sort of perspective. Let's talk about the troops then now, uh, what they're going to be doing. You've touched on what their tasks are, but how does Royal Fleet Auxiliary Argus help here? What is its responsibility, her responsibility? Um, Argus, you could almost say, she's Royal Fleet Auxiliary. She's not part of the Royal Navy, but she's attached to the Royal Navy because, in fact, they're, they're, they're driven by merchant navy uh, people. Um, they've got a hospital on board. Um, they've also got all the equipment that you need for example, for isolation uh, isolation wards uh, that you might need, the three Merlin helicopters, um, they, they will be joined by other ships which will keep those refuelled. It's, it's keeping the transportation going. But there's another part of this, is that the Navy has got a ship that size uh, of, of the Argus. Um, it can run small towns by linking up its electricity. It can put facilities into places. This is, these are not urban places, in, into areas and into uh, uh, conurbations that can't run in a way that you would hope they would run trying to deal with something like this. And that is the problem with, with a disease like this, uh, is that it is infectious. The health and management systems are so poor that it's basic infrastructure that's going to help eradicate it. Infrastructure and changing the way people are. You see, one of the things that's going to happen, and it's started to happen already, is that people stop going to work because they believe, I could, might catch it by the guy sitting next to me, if he sneezes, I'm dead that sort of attitude. So people start going to work. That's why the World Bank is coming up with these figures and saying it's not just a question that a lot of businesses go broke or whatever, is that industries, businesses, societies collapse because of something like this and something like this which the local people have no confidence. And you take the British Army goes in, the people use the British Army in Sierra Leone, they are like the British Army in Sierra Leone. Um, the guys go in, they've got the wiring diagram for setting up civil societies and helping. And one of their jobs, which is not talked about very much, one of their jobs in, in some, many ways is what the British forces do quite well in emergency planning, and that's to restore confidence and get local people organised. 750 guys go in. They don't do it all. Their task is to get the local people to do it as well. Christopher Lee for the moment. Thank you. Let's talk now to someone who's seen the disease at first hand. Sky News correspondent Alex Crawford has been to a treatment centre in Liberia. Hello to you, Alex. Thanks for joining us on SITREP. Can you describe the situation for us where you are? Well, Liberia is basically facing uh, another war. Uh, After coming out of years and years and years of, of civil war, they 
face an invisible enemy and frankly it needs a military style campaign to try and get it under control it's uh, way out of control as far as i can see um on the ground uh, with many people dying um uh, who aren't followed up none of their relatives are followed up the the contact that they've made with other people who they may have infected is not followed up it's because it's extremely chaotic and there's very few centers isolation centers to deal with it uh, and far too many people who are sick and dying alone in secret because of the stigma attached to admitting that you have the disease that risks the whole family being ostracized and shunned by the community. So there's a great deal of fear and ignorance on top of uh, poverty and uh, general very, very fragile health infrastructure. President Obama sending nearly 4,000 troops into Liberia. We know that there are 750 British military uh, troops going there as well. Is this something the international community has responded to too late, in your view, Alex? I think they, they've taken a long time coming um, and waking up to the very, very serious nature of this disease. There's no doubt about that. I went uh, first to Liberia and Sierra Leone in June and was absolutely shocked, gobsmacked about how few people were dealing with a critical situation at the epicentre. Now, months later, I returned to Monrovia, Liberian, the Liberian capital, and the the capital is ravaged by this virus now, which has taken hold in huge slum areas. Uh, Ebola itself is actually uh, relatively hard to catch. You have to be in direct bodily contact with bodily fluids of an infected person. But once it's taken a hold in an area which is they're living cheek by jowl with no hygiene facilities on offer, they have little running water, no electricity, little education. Many of them are illiterate and can't even read the literature about it. So they're sending out picture literature to try and warn them about the spread and what to do to avoid it. But once it's taken hold under those conditions and the chaotic nature of how they're dealing with it, uh, as I mentioned earlier, not following up, not closing down and quarantining whole communities and families, then it's very difficult to, to get a grip of it. And that's what they're struggling to do right now. And although there are very many American soldiers already on the ground, they're not actually having an effect yet. It's all taking far too long. They're building huge centres. But those buildings are at the very embryonic stages of being set up. In the meantime, you've got this mounting death toll. And these US and British military workers, all well and good in terms of building these centres. But isn't it frontline medics that's needed right now, Alex? There's pretty much everything that's needed. I mean, it's really hard to emphasize um, just how critical the situation is and how little they have, how, what few weapons they have to fight this at the moment. I think you, you alluded earlier to the, the help being too slow. It's still too slow. And, you know, as you go out on the streets every day, you're faced with all these people who are sick, the further potential of, of even more being infected. And no one's following it up. No one's clamping it down, taking these people out of out of the area and putting them into segregation. You've got people waiting in holding centres, holding centres which are stuffed full of people because they can't get into the actual isolation centres. 
um, Medicine Sans Frontier has set up large camps, but it, and they have empty beds, I'm told. But there are still many people out in the community. More than 80% of those sick with Ebola do not actually reach an isolation centre or a hospital. So and that's a huge number that are just out in the community. Alex Crawford, Sky News Special Correspondent. Thanks for joining us on SITREP. Still to come, why the US Vice President has had to say sorry to the leaders of Turkey and the UAE. And the conference season is finally over, so what did the main UK party say about defence? This is BFBS SITREP. So the fight then against IS militants in Iraq and Syria getting even more complex by the day, it seems. Today, Turkey's foreign minister says it can't be expected to lead a ground operation in Syria on its own. The country now under intense pressure to do more to help those Kurdish forces fighting IS in the Syrian town of Kobani. Chris Lee is still here. Chris, why is Turkey so reluctant to get involved on the ground? Because the first thing that Turkey wants is the destruction and the bringing down of President Assad. That's its first point. The second thing is that there's a lot of talked about the Kurds who are fighting um, uh, in Syria, saying they want the Turks to intervene. What they don't want is they don't want the Turks to send soldiers in. And in fact, if the Turks sent soldiers in, that would be an invasion. And that presents all sorts of But the Kurds don't want to. The Kurds for 25 years have been fighting Turkey. What they want is the Turks to open the borders so they can bring weapons in and supplies in. And it, it is as simple as that. The, Tur- the Turks, in the meantime, don't want to get the, let the Kurds get too well entrenched and to be too successful because they might then turn their efforts onto Turkey itself. And Turkey wants, as you said, the end of Bashar al-Assad in Syria. What else do they want out of this in terms of military support? Well, I think the second part of it, um, I mean, what the Turkish government has done, it's pushed through Parliament legislation or really a confirmation of an an amendment uh, to allow, for example, other NATO uh, countries to put bases or put aircraft in in Cholik. And don't forget, NATO NATO has Turkey as a member. So that's the, the Americans are really puzzled why the Turks can't get involved in this because it's a NATO effort. But the Turks want... First, get rid of Assad. Second, then uh, ISIS or, or, or Islamic State, whatever you like to call it. That's exactly what they want. What they don't want is the, is the Kurds to get so powerful that they might turn their guns on Turkey. Now, that's not unlikely to happen at the moment, but that's their long-term plan. Meanwhile, Washington ignoring, if you like, these localised disputes between Turkey, the Kurds, Syria and so on. They're much more focused on the big picture and the language coming from Washington much stronger now, putting pressure on Ankara to do something and do it fast. Well, it is, accepting that Ankara will turn around and say, listen, you are carrying out successive with, with for example, United Kingdom, but successive uh, bombing exercises into Syria. And we had Philip Hammond, uh, the, the, the British uh, Foreign Secretary, in Washington, noticeably, saying that if America wants us to join in the Syrian bombing, then we'll take this quite seriously and probably have to go to Parliament, but we, perhaps we ought to do so. And the Kurds, again, but the people on the ground, the, the people who are fighting Assad and fighting ISIS, are saying, hang on, you're bombing us as well. And that's enormously difficult. If you continue to bomb us, then we're in trouble, and so it's counterproductive. And the Americans are saying, and Admiral, Rear Admiral John Kirby, the, the spokesman for the Pentagon, said just last night, listen, the bombing's not going to do it. Now, everybody understands that, 
but nobody can understand quite what else you have to do. Just briefly, are the airstrikes having any effect? Are they working at all? Yeah, what they're having, they're, they're degrading. What, uh, for example, uh, degrading advances sometimes to IS. But when the bombing stops, then you come back. It, we're back into the old thing, is that any damn fool can take a hill. The difficulty is actually holding on to it. One other thing that's interesting at the moment, uh, there's, a, there's a place in, uh, in, in, in Syria, and it's called C, just simply C. And C is the site of a Russian intelligence station. And the Russians are working there. They got their intelligence people in Syria. Had they had for a long time, uh, working with the Syrians. Uh, that that complicates the story. It does indeed. Christopher Lee, for the moment, thank you. Well, connected to Turkey, the US Vice President Joe Biden has been forced to apologise to Ankara and the United Arab Emirates. It's all because of comments he made in a speech about the fight against ISIS in Syria. Here to explain more is the political reporter Aaron Blake from the Washington Post. Hello to you, Aaron. What did he say? Well, he uh, he basically accused the allies, the United States allies in the region, of having allowed uh, fighters to cross into uh, Syria. He also said that these countries, you know, basically unwittingly allowed arms to flow to the extremist groups in the intentions of arming more moderate rebels. So, uh, obviously, pretty significant accusation to lodge against people who you're working closely with, who you really need in order to uh, carry out missions, and some of whom, including Turkey, of course, are still trying to figure out precisely how much they want to get involved in this conflict. So, uh, you know, Joe Biden is, is known for saying some things that are a little bit off-key, being maybe a little bit too honest, and uh, and this was certainly a case where it, it happened in an arena that's a pretty serious set of circumstances. A situation like this, though, demands some sort of direct talking. Uh, lots of people saying exactly what he said. Why then was he forced to apologise? Is it just because of this working relationship that's in jeopardy? Yeah, you know, I think that even in the White House's apology, they didn't necessarily say that they didn't believe what he had said. A lot of people do believe that this is what's occurred, and they, you know, they decide that they're, they're accusing allies of deliberately having this happen. Uh, they're just saying that it's something that has happened. Uh, and so he was perhaps a little bit guilty of being too honest. But, uh, you know, sometimes in international diplomacy, you can't be uh, uh, so upfront and so honest about exactly what you think. You need to be a little bit more uh, diplomatic, so to speak. So how did that apology go down, uh, diplomatic language notwithstanding? Well, you know, uh, Joe Biden, like I said, this is kind of par for course for him. He's He's often uh, said the wrong thing. I think people are terribly surprised to see it. Um, I, you know, I think that for a guy who uh, has designs on maybe becoming the next U.S. president, though, uh, this kind of thing certainly hurts his image. I don't think people take him very seriously in that regard. And so, uh, you know, it's a, it's a momentary headache for the White House. It's more of a long-term headache for Joe Biden, I think. Aaron Blake from the Washington Post. Thanks for talking to us. Now, in between the disc, sorry, thank you. 
Now, in between the discussions on fighting Islamic State and tackling Ebola, Westminster politicians have been managing to squeeze in their party conferences as well. Over the last few weeks, the Lib Dems wrapping up their gathering in Glasgow yesterday with a speech from the Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg, which began with a tribute to the armed forces taking action in Iraq. These, the last big party gatherings before the next general election, an opportunity perhaps for them to set out their policy stalls to voters. Our correspondent James Hurst joins us now from Westminster. Did we learn anything in terms of their plans for defence, James? Not a huge amount. And the, the really important question as we head towards the next election uh, for defence, it, it all comes down to if they form the next government, how much are they going to spend on defence? Because there's going to have to be another spending review, another defence review. And, and the sort of real question that's also been posed recently as well is because of the NATO summit where everybody signed up to um, trying to meet the 2% of national income spent on defence, over the next 10 years. Well, that's a, that's a figure Britain currently meets, but a, a lot of experts say actually we're on course to dip below that. So, so the question I want, uh, wanted answered at each of the party conferences was would they commit to sticking to 2% or more of GDP? Uh, you will hear first from the Defence Secretary, Michael Fallon, uh, then from Labour's Shadow Defence Secretary, Vernon Coker, and finally from the Lib Dem leader, Nick Clegg. Despite the deficit we inherited, we are now meeting the 2% defence target. And we will go on spending 2% for the rest of the spending review period. And I want us to continue that commitment. This is no time to drop our guard or to lower our spending. Well, what we've got actually on this one is the same policy uh, as the government. We're committed to uh, def the defence spending that the government has laid out until the end of 2015-16, and the actual spending that comes after that will be a matter for the next strategic... It's, it's a simple yes-no. Are you prepared to commit to meeting the NATO 2% target? The, the answer is what, what, what we will do is we will look at that as part of the next spending review, which is exactly the same policy as the government. Uh, it's certainly something I would like us to do. Obviously, uh, public spending more generally would need to be looked at uh, after the next general election again, uh, but... Um, you know, at the NATO conference recently, uh, both David Cameron and myself were very clear with other countries that, you know, we can't we can't wield the ends and not not the means. So what we were hearing from all three parties was was remarkably similar. It's a, an ambition to carry on meeting the two percent target, which e in real terms might actually mean increasing defence spending. Uh, a very publicly stated ambition something that almost sounded as though they would be, but actually there's no actual full-on commitment there, where you were seeing other spending commitments in other policy areas. Some pretty aggressive language coming out of Nick Clegg as far as IS is concerned, though. There he was, thumping his fist on the lectern, saying he's going to cut off IS and their supply routes. Were there any defence policy announcements other than that? No, I mean, I, I think you'll find that, you know, in a sense, particularly when it came to world affairs, uh, that, that old political uh, adage, events, rather overshadowed things. But in terms of sort of looking further ahead rather than dealing with the now, um, Labour were talking about actually writing defence reviews into law and, and, and ensuring that Parliament get a, a say on that. Well, they've talked about that in, in the past. Uh, Michael Fallon, the Defence Secretary, 
Secretary uh, said that he wanted to see a new uh, decoration for uh, reservists uh, who've served 10 years, irrespective of their rank. Uh, the Liberal Democrats, in their pre-manifesto, uh, promised a Veterans Commissioner. There are little things that, that have been sort of mentioned in each thing, but substantively about, you know, how much they spend, the structure of our armed forces, any new foreign policy priorities, uh, any radical departures. No, everybody is saying uh, we'll have to see when it comes to a defence review if we're the ones uh, running Downing Street, running Whitehall. James Hurst, thank you. So, Christopher Lee, any other business this week? Very important day for North Korea. Tomorrow, a very important day, because will we see Kim Jong-un? Um, Kim Jong-un is the leader of North Korea. He hasn't been seen since the summer. The word is going around that he's either got gout, which his whole family have had gout for 40 years, um, but he is ill in some way, very ill, or... Has there been a quiet coup d'etat? And uh, could it be that uh, Vice Marshal Jo Myung-rok is going to emerge as the leader of North Korea? This means an enormous amount to almost everybody, new, new nuclear power, etc., run by what one foreign office minister called a, a, a basket case. <laughs> Tomorrow, f- Friday, is very important because it's, it's Workers' Day anniversary. Super important day in North Korea. In North Korea, it is the most important day mm. of the year. If he doesn't appear, then the rumour guys are going to be around saying, in whose bedroom has he got locked up in? So, you know, watch any space tomorrow evening and see whether your man turned up at Workers' Day. It'll be very interesting. What's your hunch on it? Ill or a quiet rebellion? Uh, well, his, his father used to disappear for three or four weeks, but there was the, you know, the end of the Seoul uh, Games just last week. You would have expected him to be there. Uh, mm. He wasn't there, but uh, Vice Marshal uh, uh, Jo Myung-rok was there. So I've got, I got 50 quid that he ain't going to appear. Christopher Lee. Always good to talk to you. That's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter and you can follow us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com forward slash SITREP. And we're back at the same time next week. But for now, from me, Paula Middlehurst, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. And music Music. for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2.